But we are going to be back in Joshua chapter 1. We're going to be um, wrapping up this introductory look at the book of Joshua where we, we find so many of the key themes for the entire book uh, in the first eight verses of Joshua chapter 1. Last week, we simply looked at the first two verses of chapter 1, and we began to unpack this sentence that summarizes these first nine verses. God's call of faith came during a key transition, verses 1 and 2, to a key leader, verse 1, who is given a key promise, verses 3 to 6, in a key direction in which to follow God, verses 7 to 8, and then is supplied a key reminder of how to order his life in the life of the Israelites. That's verse 9. This call of faith came to Joshua at a very vulnerable time in the history of the people of Israel. As we saw last week, this key transition was during Moses's, after Moses' death. But God had a leader to carry out the task which lay unfinished, that laid before the people of Israel. And we're going to see this morning that, that, you know, we too have received a call of faith. We're not called, however, to follow Joshua into the promised land. We've been given a call of faith as Christians to follow Jesus, who is the greater Joshua, into the greater promised land that he has secured for us. And that's why the key theme of this series in the book of Joshua is this. A faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. If you want to to conquer, it's not going to be in your own abilities or your own strengths. As was already mentioned this morning, um, Mindy's sister Amy, we had, uh, 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 there, uh, there was her funeral, and she had a conquering faith. Now, in, in worldly eyes, that was not a conquering faith, right? But because we do know the truth of, of what Jesus has secured for us, the fact that our faith is in Christ is what allows us to conquer. It is nothing within ourselves. So this morning, we're going to wrap up our introduction by looking at these key concepts that the opening of Joshua presents to us. As we've already looked at this key transition in verses 1 and 2, and this key leader, Joshua, to whom he points to Jesus, we're going to continue looking at three final key aspects of the book of Joshua. So as we do this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank You that it is not the amount of our faith, 
Lord, it's not the strength of our faith, but Lord, it's what our faith is placed in that matters. And Lord, we are fighting a battle. Lord, we're fighting a battle as we sang about that has already been won. But it is still a battle. There's struggles in this battle. There's fears in this battle. There's discouragements in this battle. There's exciting times in this battle and, 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 and victories that we see in this battle. But Lord, with the ebb and flow that that comes through the daily grind of life, may we not be forgetful that the battle has been won. That we are more than conquerors, not through ourselves, but through Christ. So Lord, I pray that whatever it is that each individual is going through this morning, that, you, that Your Spirit would remind each of us of the reality that Jesus has conquered, that we are victorious, and Lord, we are secure in Christ. Father, as we uh, finish looking at this, this beginning introductory chapter that leads us into the rest of the book, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The third key aspect that we see in this passage, the first nine verses of of Joshua 1, is that in the midst of this key transition, there are specific key promises given to Joshua. And there's two key promises that we find in this passage that are the key themes throughout the entire book. The first key promise that that we see in this opening passage is the promise of land. In fact, that is what the entire book of Joshua is about, right? That God is giving His people this land that was promised. If you look at verse 3, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Wow, what an all-encompassing promise. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon. If you look at at verse 6, you see, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. See, the first thing we have to realize about this promise of land is that it is a, a repeated promise. It's not just repeated in these first nine verses of the book of Joshua, but it has been repeated over and over again all the way back to Genesis. And in verse 3, 
uh, it says that, that just as I promised to Moses, I am going to give you every place that your foot has stepped. God doesn't forget His promises. We do. We oftentimes can't carry through on our promises. We, 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 we forget the things that we say. They, they slip our mind. But not with God. What did God tell Moses? Very similar to what we read in verse 3 here in Joshua, God has already said this to Moses. In Deuteronomy 11, God says, tells Moses to declare to the people, every place which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. We're going to see very similar uh, geographic markers in Joshua 1.4. And then the verse continues. It says, No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread. You see, this was something that God was going to do. And He was going to do it for His people. In verse 6, God doesn't comfort Moses with this promise of land simply as, I've already promised this to Moses, but He even goes back further than Moses. And He says, I am going to cause the people to inherit the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. You see, this wasn't just a promise God gave Moses. This was a promise that God gave to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. All the way back, if you remember in Genesis 13, where Abraham and Lot, they divide. After this, God tells Abraham... Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Here's some really broad markers. Northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. As one person says, the theological roots of Joshua 1 are sunk deeply into the soil of Genesis 12 and following. And that ancient promise is about to receive its contemporary fulfillment. You see, all of God's promises have a specific time in which they will be fully realized. Every single one of God's promises. Isn't one of the difficulties in the Christian life having to live by faith and not by sight? Isn't it? I think all of us would say, you know, we know that our eternal destiny is secure. That if we are followers of Christ, if, if we, have, we have given Him our lives, we've turned to Jesus in faith and repentance from sins, that we would say, I know 
that my eternal destiny is settled. What I struggle with is the today. And what's going to happen that that finally leads me to that eternal destiny? Did you know that even Abraham, and, and, and here as we look at Joshua, every single one of these individuals had to live by faith in the everyday. In fact, if you look at, uh, uh, we're not going to turn there, but in Hebrews 11, speaking of Abraham who was given this promise of land, the author of Hebrews in, in chapter 11 and verse 10, it says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. But then he says, uh, the, the author of Hebrews says in verse 16, that all of these people, that, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, Joshua, they were all looking, desiring a better country, a heavenly one. So even though we're going to read at the end of the book of Joshua that all of the Lord's good promises were fulfilled, God did give His people the land. And the boundaries that we will read of in verse 4, um, those boundaries were realized under the reigns of David and Solomon. There was still a fullness to God's pr promise that has not to this day been fulfilled. It is the promise of an eternal land, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. That all those who have gone before us and each of us today are anticipating. So we can put ourselves right in line with Joshua and Moses and Abraham. Only in a, in a privileged state because we now are recipients and have seen what Jesus has done. But we are still traversing as strangers and foreigners looking for that final inheritance. And Jesus has won it. In verse 4 of Joshua 1, we, we read this promise of land that it's a repeated promise that God has continually repeated that He will give His people the promised land. And it's also a very specific promise. In verse 4, it says, uh, God tells Joshua exactly where this land is from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. God is a God of detail. He's not going to somehow overlook something in your life or forget again something in your life. This is very detailed. This is what God has promised. You see, folks, this is nothing short of a divine promise. God tells Joshua, I have given you. Only God could do this. The text doesn't even say, I will give you. In God's plans and purposes, this is as good as already done even though the battles have yet to be fought in the book of Joshua. 
Folks, the Lord is doing something if you're a follower of Him in your life, in my life, in this church. Are we going to walk by faith in obedience to Him to see Him work? The promise of land encapsulates this whole book and we see how this promise of land is fulfilled. But there's a second promise that God gives Joshua and we are going to read of the necessity of this promise again throughout the entire book of Joshua. And that is, we see in verse 5, the promise of God's presence. Without His presence, all of this would be impossible. This is what God tells Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The promise of God's presence. Folks, when we realize that we have God's presence with us, we have a greater privilege than what these Israelites experienced. Not simply, it wasn't simply as in the Old Testament, God among them, but we have the privilege of God in us, in the Holy Spirit. And there's three things that we must realize about God's presence. First of all, we see in this verse that God's presence provides settledness to us. In verse 5, it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This was not because of Joshua's mighty valor, though he was a brave warrior. Because any one of these mighty cities in in Canaan would be able to, to wipe Joshua and their army out without God's assistance. The settledness that Joshua was to have was because God was with him. In fact, God tells Moses again in Deuteronomy He will give their kings into your hand and you shall make them their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Because of their own abilities? No. Because of God. No one shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now you would think when you receive a promise like this that it would, it would be 100% encouraging, right? But you have to remember the context in which this promise is given. If God is saying to Joshua, no one is going to stand before you all the days of your life, guess what that implies? that Joshua is going to face opposition. That Joshua has enemies. 
that Joshua is going to be going in the midst of intimidating circumstances. You see, the promise is given not to remove opposition from Joshua, but to give Joshua something to cling to in the midst of that opposition. And we have to remember that about God's promises. God's promises are given to us not to clear away difficulty, but to give us something to cling to in the midst of that difficulty. That He is in control. You see, God's presence provides a settledness for us. But then verse 5 continues and he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And God continues, says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. There's a second thing that we can know about God's presence, and that that is that God's presence is given without partiality God's presence is given with art without partiality it wasn't that you know what Joshua you're kind of second rate when it's compared to Moses so you're going to get some of my presence but not quite as much as Moses because as we've already read there has uh, there has arisen No greater a prophet than Moses up to this point. No, God says, I am going to be just as faithful to you as I was with Moses. You see, folks, this is Joshua's burning bush experience. You remember Moses when when he was uh, in the wilderness taking care of of his father-in-law's sheep and he had had run away from Egypt and for 40 years he's he's there in the pasture lands. And and he sees the burning bush and he goes over to to look at it and, and God starts speaking to Moses. When God tells Moses what he wants Moses to do, Moses' first reaction is, but who am I to do something like this? And you know what God's words are to Moses in Exodus 3.12? He says, but I will be with you. The very same promise that we see in Joshua it doesn't matter who we are we need God's presence God and God alone is sufficient for our lives and God gives his presence without without partiality to his people And those who humbly come before Him realizing their own need, those are the ones who experience His presence in greater degrees. But then we see at the end of verse 5, He says, I will not leave you or forsake you. You see, the the third aspect that we must know of God's presence is God's presence cannot be lost 
That word leave you, it, it has the idea of, of somebody that abandons someone else or uh, drops them, lets them go, that deserts them. And that's not in keeping with God's character. In fact, again, God says, Moses declares from God to the people in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. You see, for God to forsake His people would be for God to act out of His character. And folks, we serve a Savior today who in Hebrews chapter 13 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what is the conclusion that that Joshua is to come to? Verse 6, God says, be strong and courageous. That's the only conclusion that, that Joshua can rightly come to in light of these promises. And this isn't the first time that Joshua or the people of Israel have have heard this exhortation. Deuteronomy 31, God again declares to the people, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We don't fear because somehow we have a good grasp of everything that's going on or we feel that we can somehow manage everything. We don't fear because it is the Lord our God who goes with us. So folks, verses 3-6 to show us that we, like Joshua, are called to faith. And in that faith, we have been given these same key promises. We've been given a future inheritance to look forward to. We've been given God's presence as we go forward to that secure future. And in the every days on our way to that promised land, just like Joshua and the children of Israel, we have been given a key direction. Verses 7 and 8. We are called to follow God's law. God's law was to be Joshua. It was to be Israel's guide. Look at what verse 7 says. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. God's Word was to direct Joshua. God's Word was to direct God's people. You know, we see a few things from verse 7. Following God's Word, it takes strength and courage. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Joshua was already told in verse 6 to be strong and courageous, to go out, that, to fight the battles, because God 
was giving the land. And now Joshua is called to be strong and courageous to not follow his own understanding, but to follow what God has said. And that takes strength and courage. It doesn't take a lot of strength and courage to to right away at the drop of a hat say, you know what? I'm going to take matters into my own hands and figure out what to do. It takes strength and courage to follow God's Word. Why does it take strength and courage to follow God's Word? Well, as the text indicates here, it's because we have to trust it. I mean, there's a lot of scary giants and there's a lot of scary armies out there in the, in the land of Canaan. And I'm sure that Joshua, not only in hearing from God, is also looking at the written instructions of God continually having to assure his heart that God is in this. Take strength and courage to follow God's Word because it means we have to trust God's Word. And it's much easier to trust our own understanding, isn't it? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It takes strength and courage to trust God's Word because trusting on God's Word means that we're waiting on God. As we look throughout the book of Joshua, we're going to see several instances where the people did not wait on God's Word. And every time they got themselves into difficulty. Think of when they charged the city of Ai not realizing that there was sin in the camp. Think about chapter 9 when they relied upon their own understanding and they made a treaty with the Gibeonites. We see a positive example in chapter 22 when there was a misunderstanding of the two and a half tribes that were on the other side of the Jordan and and the people gathered for battle because they thought that they made a false um, altar. And the thought was, we're going to have to wipe out these tribes before God judges the whole nation. But they waited on God and they confronted the two and a half tribes to say, hey, what's going on? Share with us. Tell us, what, what, what are you doing? And it was a misunderstanding. You see, following God's Word takes strength and courage because it's not relying on self. It's relying on God and His wisdom. And following God's Word also means commitment. Following God's Word takes commitment. The end of verse 7 says, Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. In other words, they're not to veer off from God's Word. And there's so many ways to veer off from God's Word. 
in the context, the main temptation that the Israelites would have would be idolatry. In fact, God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. You see, the temptation for the Israelites would be, let's make peace with these surrounding nations. Let's follow some of their ways and also keep our own ways. Maybe that's an easier path to go down than what God's calling us to. And repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, don't do that. Don't make peace treaties. Don't don't let yourselves marry the people's wives. It's going to cause you to fall into idolatry. That was the big temptation facing the Israelites. And we also have big temptations that face us to turn from the right hand or the left when it comes to God's Word. Quickly, just for sake of time, we also see not only does following God's Word take strength and courage, not only does it take commitment, but God's Word must be internalized. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You see, God's Word must be internalized. Many times the focus of of our Christian life is, is wrongly just outward action, doing this, not doing that. And we treat God's Word like it's a textbook. Like it's just a list of empty instructions. But God's Word has always been for the heart. To fill the heart and inform the mind. And this means consistent saturation of the Word of God to your heart. Verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. This is the same idea that we have in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, talking about the blessed man, the blessed woman. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. Psalm 63, verse 5 and 6, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Psalm 77, 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. We could go on and on. God's Word is a balm to our souls. Are you letting God's Word saturate and marinate in your heart? Or are you so busy with other things that the Word of God is just getting choked out? 
You see, consistent saturation of the Word of God to your heart will then lead to consistent application of the Word of God to your life and your actions. Why do we not do the things that God's Word is to lead us to do? So many times it's because we are not in God's Word and letting that saturation take place. But in verse 8, what's the purpose of this meditation? Is it just for empty knowledge? No, it says, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. You see, they were to be careful in light of all of the complexities of life and situations. There are so many ways and so many voices that are screaming at us through the day, through the week, that if we are not saturating ourselves in God's Word, it's just simply going to be overcome. There's just no other way to look at it. The life fruit here is that there is a prospering or there is a success not necessarily in worldly, cultural eyes, but there is a success that the path that God has laid out for us, we are faithfully following. And that path is going to have a lot of ups, it's going to have a lot of downs, it's going to have a lot of good times, it's going to have a lot of bad times, it's going to have discouraging times, it's going to have happy times but it is faithfully walking the course God has ordained for us. That is good success. That is prospering. Psalm 1.3 says, The one who, whose roots are in the water of the Word is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. I like what one individual said. It's on, be on the screen. Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 alike tell us that a life pleasing to God does not arise from mystical experiences or warm feelings or from a new gimmick advocated in a current release from one of our evangelical publishers. No, it comes from the Word of God the word God has already spoken and from obedience to that word. That is true success. And as we close this morning, we come to this final verse in this section of Joshua 1. And we see that, Joshua, that God gives Joshua this key reminder. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, this is a continual command. Third time it's mentioned in just these nine verses. Be strong and courageous. If you go back uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 31 where, where, Moses, where Joshua is commissioned, this is actually the sixth time that you will read of this command. 
the fifth time that it's given specifically to Joshua. What is the opposite of Joshua being strong and courageous in the Lord his God? The opposite is for him, as the verse says, to be frightened and dismayed. In fact, that word frightened in the book of Deuteronomy, it's used four times of what Israel was not to be when looking at the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. To be frightened and dismayed, to be despondent, was to forget God and to simply look at circumstances. And this morning, I'd like to ask you, have you forgotten your God and are you simply looking at circumstances today? Do we need to once again heed this continual command that God gives us? In fact, the command, do not fear, is the, is the most frequent command we read in Scripture. Do you need to hear this once again? This continual command, but look at the end. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why are we given this continual command? Because we have a continual presence. God is with us wherever we go. God was with the Israelites as they encircled around the walls of Jericho. God was even with the Israelites as they were fleeing the people of Ai, because there was sin in the camp. God will not leave us or forsake us. How do we know that God will not leave us or forsake us? Not only because of what we are going to see in the book of Joshua, but once again, Realizing a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ, we realize this because we see that God did not forsake the greater Joshua who came to secure a greater promised land. God, Jesus, God's one and only Son, perfectly held to the law of God. He did not turn to the right or to the left. In fact, Satan at Jesus' weakest points would tempt him, whether it be in the wilderness or the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does Jesus do? He clings to the Word of God. The one and only time that we read of the Father's forsaking the Son was on the cross as He bore our sins and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And folks, God temporarily turned His back on His Son so that He would never have to turn His back on us. Let us look this morning to the greater Joshua.